Hey everybody, welcome to the Janice Connected Podcast. Today our guest is John Manis, and John is such a fun guy to talk to because he has so much experience in the self-storage sector. He's been in the business for over 13 years in different capacities, and he just has so much insight to share. So John, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate your time. All right. Well, let's go ahead and just jump right into it. So can you tell us how you got into the Mm self-storage industry? Well, I spent 17 years in retail, like the Walmarts and Kmarts of the world, and just got burnt out on it. So um, I was a district manager and regional manager in that environment and um, actually applied to, I wanted to stay in the multi-store leadership. So I started to apply to things like general manager of warehousing, district manager, regional manager of multifamily. And I applied to a um, district manager position um, in self-storage. And I actually didn't even know what I applied to at the time. Nice. Um, And uh, it was with this little self-storage company called Uncle Bob's at the time, which is now Life Storage. And um, it was the fourth largest self-storage company in the United States. And I interviewed with them. And uh, actually didn't get the job. Um, I ended up being what was, I didn't know at the time, was their second choice. So uh, they offered the job to somebody from public storage. They uh, ended up deciding to stay with public storage. So they called me and uh, asked me if I was still interested. And I said yes. And as they say, the rest is history. I went on board with them as a district manager. I became number one in sales for three years in a row. So because of that, they promoted me to regional vice president. And as a reward, they moved me to Buffalo, New York. So I spent spent almost four years in Buffalo uh, as an RVP with them. So that's how I got involved. And uh, it's been a blast ever since. Right. And you, you know, you started out with these large organizations and now you've branched out on your own with uh, two partners and you're building and you're acquiring stores really rapidly. So how has your approach to or your view of storage kind of shifted now that you're working for yourself rather than a larger operator and the process of raising that capital independently? Um, it's it's quite interesting because the the second part to that story is I left Uncle Bob's um, and went to work for uh, the Jenkins organization in Houston, Texas, who had 55 self-storage properties as their COO. So if you look at it from the standpoint that Uncle Bob's is an institutional type of company, you know, publicly traded, a lot of structure, um, a lot of policies and procedures, a lot of different resources that allow you to build that structure. And then you leave there and you go to a more entrepreneurial environment like the Jenkins organization, um, where our strength was in not only acquisitions and development on a small scale, but we did third party management as well. So, um, the Jenkins organization owned 
16 stores themselves and all the rest of them were third-party management. So I learned the institutional side of things from Uncle Bob's, and then I learned the entrepreneurial side of things from the Jenkins organization. So now I take both of those sides and implement it inside of my own company. So from an operational standpoint, you know, employee handbook, uh, ops manual, training manual, all that structure that Uncle Bob's had, we're implementing and and, um, implementing inside of our own company. But at the same time, you take the entrepreneurial spirit and say, well, you know, if this isn't if this isn't working, we can change the policy tomorrow. We don't have to go through all these different departments to change those because we're not, you know, we have 13 stores right now that we've grown over the last two and a half or three years. So it's pretty easy to move in the entrepreneurial type of way, even though you're trying to implement structure like the big boys do. So that's our advantage right now is we can adapt and overcome a lot quicker than the big boys can. Gotcha. And from your perspective, have you uh, encountered a lot of people that kind of have that same experience where they came from, you know, a large operator and kind of the same mix of entrepreneurial spirit and experience? Or are you guys kind of really like kind of singled out in that aspect? Um, Well, if you look at the three partners, me, Robbie Dunn and Eric Osterhuss, um, we not only bring three different personalities to the table, but we bring three different backgrounds to the table as well. And, you know, my background is in retail and sales and operations. And, you know, I, I do all the fundraising. I become the, what's called the face of the company. It's not a pretty face, but it's a face. <laughs> um, so, but then I run operations, you know, after we buy them. Well, Robbie Dunn comes out of 30 years of the insurance industry and family office. So he's also used to structure policies and procedures, contracts, all that kind of stuff. So Robbie plays the role of the behind the scenes kind of person. He deals with all the banks, the lawyers, um, the insurance companies, anything that has a contract to it, Robbie deals with. And then Eric comes out of oil and gas as a project manager. So he was a land guy in oil and gas. So he does all the construction related stuff. So he deals with architects, engineers, um, contractor, general contractors, subcontractors, all that kind of stuff. So, and then if you look at it from a personality standpoint, I'm the extrovert, Eric's the introvert more of an engineer type of personality and Robbie somewhere in the middle. So as far as a team goes, it's probably the most well-balanced team I've ever worked on from a leadership group. And then we've added in strengths of people that have six, eight, 10 years worth of self-storage experience. And then some that just bring business experience to the table and uh, in a very creative and entrepreneurial type of way. So uh, that's what I mean by you bring somebody in from the outside that doesn't have storage background and they have great ideas. The worst thing you can do is stifle them, right? Right. So so we can move a lot faster on policy and procedure in a lot of cases 
and those people bring those ideas to the table, which then it becomes really fun because now you can do stuff that nobody else is doing. Right. And that's really what drives innovation and really keeps you, you know, a step ahead of everybody. So that's so great that you guys have that mix going on. Yep. So taking a step back, kind of looking at the bigger picture, you know, whenever you reflect on your career, in your mind, what makes self-storage such an attractive industry? Well, if I can do it, anybody can do it, right? <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> um, I mean, I'm, I'm poking fun at it, but the, the reality is, and this is what I tell investors all the time, is... No, this is a physical asset that you're buying that has an operating business inside of the physical real estate asset that you're buying. So the advantage um, that you have when you're entering into self-storage as an investment is, one, you got to know how to run the business. So um, I always tell people that want to get into storage if you don't know how to run storage and you don't know all the little details and all the vendors and you know like what doors to use <laughs> um things like that then partner with somebody who knows what they're doing because that's the key um but once you partner with somebody who knows what they're doing and knows how to run these things you then have a physical asset so the cash flow off of the business pays for the mortgage and hopefully a return on top of that to that in the end you own a business so what happens is your customers pay your mortgage down for you so over time you create this gap of what the value of the property is because it's a real estate play but the operating business pays the mortgage down and in that gap you get to keep that money wow what a cool thing <laughs> so when it, when it comes to what I've learned about it and what I like about it is that once you know how to run them and you know how to buy them, that the only thing that the advantage you have is time because the customer pays your mortgage for you. Unlike your personal house where you're paying the mortgage for yourself. Right. Somebody else is paying your mortgage for you in self-storage. Awesome. So Along those same lines, let's get into the operation piece of owning your own facility. So for people who are new to the industry or they're looking to get into the industry, what is the most critical element of running a successful facility? I don't know that you can narrow it down to one thing. Um, <laughs> Maybe top can, three, I top five. 20. I can list 20. <laughs> but, um, so the first thing I would say is if you're looking to get into storage, the best thing you can do is get involved. And what I mean by get involved is, you know, like like you guys do the Janice Roadshow thing all over the country. Go to one of them, two of them, three of them. Sit in them and learn. Go to, like, uh, I sit on the board of the Texas Self-Storage Association. So go to the TSSA conferences. Go to their luncheons all over the state, um, go to the different state um, conferences, go to the national SSA and ISS conference, get involved because it's, it's like drinking from a fire hose. So if I was to have to say from a operational standpoint, 
what the top things are. First and foremost, it's the person you put in the office. So um, storage has this perception about itself that it has a little old lady with curlers in her hair, a cigarette in her hand, and a chihuahua in her other hand. And when you walk in the door, she's like, yeah, what do you need? <laughs> right? It's true. <clears throat> yeah, it's true. That's the perception that people have about storage. The customer does. So put a polished salesperson in the office, somebody that, like if you walked into Bath and Body Works or you walked into Victoria's Secrets or someplace like that that has a charismatic personality, start with the right person in the office because that'll change your world. So that's one. Two, marketing. Um, we uh, partnered with FindView Marketing, which Christina Alvino owns, and not having a person that not only knows how to do websites, but knows how to market a facility. It's not just about your reputation online. It's about your reputation. 50% of your customers are walk-ins, right? They don't even touch you online. So because of that, you have to have a good presence in the local community. So it's a balance. Having somebody to partner with in that realm of marketing is really, really key. Um, and then knowing what vendors to utilize for what programs you want to implement, like rent online. You know, we have the ability for a customer to go rent online, come to our facility, move into a space and never talk to anybody. They don't do that. They always come in and say hi to us. But in the end, we have those abilities. So who do you partner with that can get that done for you and make sure it's a smooth process? Who do you use for auctions? Do you use a local auction company? Do you use an online auction vendor? All of those vendor decisions. Who do you use for your doors? Who do you use for your HVAC? All of that stuff is probably the third most important thing that we do. So if I was to say top three, I would say person in the office, have a great marketing person, and then figure out who all the other vendors are that you should utilize and why based on the programs that you want to implement. Those three things would probably be the top things that come to my mind operationally. And that's such great advice because if you think about it, that really hits on just the major, you know, I mean, like you were saying, like how your facility is going to go. And I think marketing, especially like you mentioned, can be kind of overlooked uh, just in the hustle and bustle of everything. So thank you for that. I really appreciate that. So let's kind of along the same lines of uh, image and, you know, your facility overall, let's talk about renovations. So do you think that operators are doing enough in terms um, specifically as it relates to restorations and redevelopment uh, to raise the perception of self-storage as an industry? So how important is it to your model to upgrade and enhance facilities that you've acquired, whether it's via 
door replacements, expansion, adding relocatable storage units. What's your opinion? Let me ask you a question. If you walk into Starbucks and there's leather sofas and there's Wi-Fi and there's um, nice music, etc., do you pay more for a cup of coffee in that environment than you do when you walk into a rundown gas station that has a mechanic's office in it? Yeah, you do, and you're happy about it. That's right, because right? it's all about the experience. Right. So my point of view to that is in storage, we cater to the 30 to 55-year-old female. So because of that, they want to know when they walk in the door that they feel safe, secure, and it's a pleasant, positive environment, right? That's what Starbucks brings to the table. You pay $5 a cup of coffee at a Starbucks, or if you walk into that rundown gas station, you can probably pay 69 cents for a, for a cup of coffee, right? Right. Well, what we do is we buy under-managed, under-enhanced, and under-expanded properties. That's our strength, or what I'll call the mom and pop. So... The mom and pop that owns a facility like that rundown gas station, they don't see the value in dumping a couple hundred thousand dollars into a facility. Where what we do is we dump that couple hundred thousand dollars, we repaint new lights, new gate, gut the office, new office remodel. Inside the office, we put a um, wine cooler that has water and soda and everything like that in it. On top of that wine cooler, we put a Keurig and we have good coffee and things. Um, we put good candy on the counter, not just star mints. We put like Reese's peanut butter cups and stuff like that. That's important. Um, that's a big, for me that's personally, that's huge. a big thing. Because <laughs> well, Reese's are my favorite thing. So yes. it's really important for me. But what we do is we make it about the experience. And it's no secret, this is my retail background, it's no secret that if you get a customer to come in your door, first of all, then you get them to slow down, they spend more. So Starbucks is brilliant in that manner because it's not just about going to Dunkin' Donuts and grabbing a cup of coffee. It's about getting them to come in the door, slow down, and in Starbucks' case, stop and work from there for three or four hours, and you increase your average unit sale by getting them to slow down. That's exactly what we do. So we change the curb appeal, we change the inside office experience, then when you get on property, it looks more secure, it looks more, it looks safer. Um, and by doing that, you then can charge $5 a cup of coffee instead of 69 cents. So what it does to your revenue is it allows you to increase rent to be compatible to what's in the market and or even be the price leader in the market, which increases the revenue, which increases the value of the property, which gives you a better return on investment. So not only do I believe in it, that's exactly what we do. And then we go in and like if... If there's 30 doors that are broken, we buy new doors from Janus and replace them. And, you know, if there's space to be had, we do an expansion 
and we build more buildings or if we can't build we put the mass units in in place of some other things because they're a lot easier to work with when it comes to permitting and things like that um, so we do all of that because that's where the value is added it's added it's added when you buy the property but it's made when you sell it so a lot of guys will go out there and try to buy these properties and then they don't budget for the HVAC or the paint or the lighting or the gate or anything like that and they wonder why they can't raise rents like everybody else is doing because well, customer looks at that and says you know I could buy this 10 by 10 for $80 that looks like a dump or I can go down the street and feel safe and secure and have a pleasant experience and spend $120 on that same 10 by 10. People were willing to pay for a better product and Starbucks proved that. If you go back 20 years, Starbucks didn't exist and they created their own category. And now that people pay five bucks for a cup of coffee. <laughs> so, and that's what we do in storage. We go in and change the total experience but we also change the price at the same time. And that's where the money's made. Very cool. So kind of along those same lines, you know, you're seeing all these independent operators, um, independent owners. What would you say is the biggest and most common pitfall that these independent owners and operators should try to avoid when they're first starting out in the industry or even how about pitfalls that operators fall into even after they've been in the industry for several years? The pitfall is that the broker didn't call me and let me buy that property. That's the pitfall. There you um, go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, silly things like people don't put their prices online because they're afraid their competition is going to see their prices. And, and you say, okay, well, if your competition ain't seeing your prices – your customers sure as hell aren't seeing your prices either. So, I mean, we're in a day and age of convenience and, you know, we've always as humans had the, I need it now type of mentality. And it's more so now with the internet. So because of that, if you don't have your prices online, you're like 15 years behind the times. Um, so some of the pitfalls are, uh, like I mentioned, hiring a warm body and putting that warm body in the in the office because you don't want to go learn what it is to run a storage facility. So it, you know, so a lot of times you walk in and you see that old lady with the curlers in her hair and the cigarette and chihuahua and all that. I mean, um, you know, we don't we don't allow animals in our office. No dogs, no cats hamsters, fish, I don't care what it is. I mean, when I always say if you walk into Verizon to buy a phone, do they have dogs in the office? You know, we want to be that same type of image. Um, so the, the other pitfalls are, you know, not partnering with the right marketing company. All the three things that I said is we're uh, picking the wrong operating software to move in and move out um, your spaces. So 
like we use SightLink as an example, and it's what I'll call the 10,000 pound gorilla in the industry. They've got, they've got the most users and all that, but they also do a great job in understanding what the end user wants. So there's other software out there that's like $35 a month, which is really, really cheap, but that's what you get. You get a $35 a month uh, product. So knowing and doing the research to what those vendors represent, you know, they, they go buy the facility. It has an operating software already in place. They look at something like a site link and it's two or three times the money and they go, man, I'm, I'm not going to spend that money because that's not worth it to me. When in reality, if they knew what they were looking at inside site, like they would say, man, that's way worth the money. And they go, sign up for SiteLink instead of using the operating software that already exists. So that's why I go back to those three points I made earlier is get involved, go to the conferences, learn what's good, walk around the trade show, ask questions. Does there, does your product do this? Does it do that? And so on. And then work with the best companies and then implement those. It'll make you more money. I promise. (laughs) So (laughs) So there's there's a lot of little pitfalls that they do just out of not knowing. So so go get in the know, become the expert. I I was blessed to become the expert on other people's dimes through the years so that when I went out on my own, I I I knew a lot about all the little intricate things that are involved in storage. Um but if, if you don't have that luxury and you don't want to take on a job with somebody else, then go get involved now and learn those things so that you don't make those pitfalls. And kind of along those same lines, what, what have been some of the biggest challenges or maybe the biggest challenge, if, they, if you just have one, um, that you've worked through in your career? Like, was it, was it kind of at the beginning whenever you were uh, getting to the point where you were becoming the expert and you were, uh, you know, finding different learning resources or was it more kind of on the job experience? Can you kind of narrow those down? Do you have any particular ones in mind? (laughs) I mean, there's one glaring one to me and that is that, um, I am that square peg that everybody tries to force into the round hole. Um, I don't live well in certain boxes, (laughs) (laughs) So um, based on my personality and my drive, my determination, all of that kind of stuff. So um, so a lot of times I have a hard time fitting into what's considered corporate culture. I'm a real out-of-the-box kind of thinker. Um, so that's really that's, – that's probably been my biggest stumbling block in my career is – I'm not politically correct when I sit in meetings and, you know, I'm one to say that's the problem right there. And, and people go, hold on a second. I'm responsible for that. And they take it personal. So they get their feelings hurt. And next thing you know, I'm in trouble. <laughs> because I pointed out the obvious. So um, I've had a really hard time with that through my career where now that I own my own company, I can do that all I want to do. Um, and what it does, it makes us better. You know, it's, it's not about, we have a culture that it's not about blame. It's about overcoming those pain points. 
So identifying those pain points for everybody involved so that we can overcome them and figure out a positive way to fix that solution instead of just saying, well, you know, that that's in Robbie's boathouse. We just went away for a 2019 planning meeting the week before last. And um, every year we do this, we've done it for three years in a row and everything's on the table. And the three of us go away and we look at each other's categories and we poke holes in all of them. And the rule is you can't take anything personal. Like two years ago, I run operations and on, on the week of planning, Robbie says, well, what if we didn't run our own properties? What if we used a third party party platform? And I take this big gulp of a deep breath and I go, okay, I'm not supposed to take that personal. Am I? <laughs> so, but we analyze everything and we look at it from the standpoint of, okay, could it be done better if somebody else did it? And, and if the answer is yes, then why not consider that? And so everything gets on the table and we talk about it openly. And we've had a bunch of pain points, but because we're able to talk about that openly and what our successes and failures are, it makes us better. Um, where in corporate USA, you're not allowed to do that. Right. You know, st stay in your sandbox, stay in your silo. Um, and that's really what's got me in trouble in the past is I'm not one to stay in my sandbox. I, I color outside the lines all the time and in corporate America that gets you in trouble. Well, you've definitely turned that into a strength for sure. And, you know, leverage that for your company. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's a great example of taking something and turning it around to your advantage. So that's awesome. All right, so my last question for you um, of the day is all about people. So you have a really interesting approach to hiring and managing and motivating your people. So can you tell us kind of your strategy for that? And then can you also uh, give some advice to our listeners on how operators can find and keep the right people? Um. <clears throat> I do what's called a behavior-based interview style. And what that means is I don't sit down with people and say, okay, where do you see yourself in three years or five years or what's your strengths and weaknesses and so on and so on. And for those of the audience that knows what Myers-Briggs is, I do a Myers-Briggs style interview. And that is, I try to figure out whether you're introverted or extroverted, whether you're a thinker or a planner, whether you like spontaneity or you like structure whether you like to create structure and or whether you like structure to be created for you all of those different things so that the goal is to build good teams the goal is not just to hire a good person because you can put an introvert in the same room with an extrovert both of them great team members and the introvert says, man, I wish this person would shut up. And the extrovert says, man, I wish this person would say something. So, <clears throat> so it's about building good, solid teams and giving a balance to those teams. And I, like earlier I talked about me, Robbie, and Eric, is 
you know, Eric is the detail engineer type of person. So when it comes to playing to Eric's strength, after I do the high level underwriting on a property to see if it's a good property to buy, I turn it over to Eric and let him beat the detail to death. And then he comes back and goes, I change this, I change that, I change this, and so on. Um, so it starts with the interview process, and it starts with the interview process of doing a behavior-based interview style. Um, then how do you motivate them? To me, it's uh, kind of revolves around our... our um, our core values that we put together. Um, the first one is have fun. Um, the second one is um, have a juvenile's thirst for learning. We have that type of mentality inside of our company is I want people to question my leadership. I want people to question what we're doing. Um, in the end, when we finally make a decision and move forward with it, then that's the marching orders. But in the meantime, we don't have a policy or procedure. Let's beat it to death and figure out the best one. The next one is be competitive. The next one is do your best. And the last one is don't take yourself too seriously. So how you keep good people is making them a part of something bigger than yourself. It's not about just the money. You got to take care of them from a money standpoint. And if they perceive you as being greedy and they're not making their quote fair share, then um, in the end they get unmotivated and end up leaving. But money is not the number one motivator. The number one motivator is being part of something bigger than yourself and then having somebody that appreciates that. Let me give you a little story that we had our Christmas party yesterday and we gave out a bunch of different awards and you'll see where the core values revolve into this. So we gave out the rookie of the year award, to the person that's been on board just a short period of time. That's just steadily kicking butt. We gave out the Senior Citizen Award to the person that's been on board the longest that kicks butt. We gave out the uh, Merchandise Award. We had one of our top investors at our Christmas party just happened to be in town. So we invited him to Christmas party. So we gave out the Sexiest Investor Award. <laughs> um, so... Obviously, we had fun. We gave out some pretty cool awards. They got they got different um, fun things like wine glasses that say stupid things on them and stuff like that. And um, after that was all said and done, the team gave me, Robbie, and Eric a book, like a photo album book, where each one of them wrote a handwritten letter of why they're thankful to be part of our company. Oh my gosh. That's so sweet. 40, 45 different handwritten letters. Wow. Some of them from their kids. Uh, 
girl that runs our Nacogdoches property, Shalissa, her son wrote us a letter that said, thank you for giving my mommy a job so that she can buy me more toys. <laughs> Smart kid. Smart kid. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, some of them were serious, you know, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for mentoring me, all that kind of stuff. Thanks for teaching me how to fix my credit. All the things that are non-tangible to money. And some of them were funny. One of the team members wrote a two-page letter thanking, literally thanking us for everything we've done. And at the bottom said, oh, and by the way, thank you for the great big Christmas bonus you're about to give me. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't give Christmas bonus. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, That's so, so fun. So sense of humor. It was, it was so cool, man. It was so heartwarming. That, but that's what it's about. It's not about you got to hire the right person. Then you got to take care of them. They're the ones that bring you to the dance. So dance with them. Don't sit on the other side of the auditorium and go, man, I'd love to dance with that person, but you know, I'm just going to sit here and make my money. Not just about money. It's about making that person feel part of something bigger and then making them feel appreciated. Well, that is so fun. Yeah. That's so great that you guys do that. But it, it, it's, and what's it cost you? You know, the Christmas party probably cost us, $750 for mm. 45 people or something. I mean, big deal. But now they feel like they're part of something. And we had all but four people show up to the Christmas party last night. And That's we have a great turnout. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, so, so if I can emphasize to, to people, yeah, you hire the right person. And if that person brings drama to the table, we get rid of them instantly. But once they're on board, I always say put – Put the right person on a bus, put them in the right seat, and get them doing the right job. So if you get somebody on board as a store manager, let's say, and they're a high-level thinker, they're motivated by higher-level conversations, but they're running a store, the worst thing you can do is just leave them running the store. Yeah, they got a responsibility. That's what you hired them for, but why not give them – responsibility of writing this particular policy that goes into your training manual because that's what they're good at. And now they feel like they're part of something bigger because now everybody else goes out and trains that and they wrote it. So I have, and Robbie has, and Eric has built the company around great people based on what our successes and our failures have been as leaders through the years. And it's very unorthodox compared to other companies because other companies want command and control. We do want structure and we do want control. And it's not lottie dottie dotty inside of our company because they have goals and we push them really hard. But you got to have fun doing it. <laughs> or why the hell are you here? Exactly. So, so that's what we do is we have fun. Absolutely. And... I think so many different workplaces would be such better environments if they took more of that model that you guys follow. So, so great. Well, John, thank you so much again for joining us and so much great insight. Um, and if our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to contact you? Two different ways. My phone number is 210-818-1496. Uh, John. J-O-H-N at John Manus, M-A-N-E-S dot com. 
Um, the other thing is they can go to our website at pinnaclestorageproperties.com and read all about us if they want to. Awesome. Thank That's you. That's actually three. I can't count that well. So <laughs> ways. No worries. The more the better. And <laughs> listeners, if you'd like to get in touch with me or have any questions, you can send me an email at marketing at janisintl.com. Well, thanks again, everybody, for joining us. John, thank you again for your time. And we'll look forward to talking to you next time. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you.